We've been looking at Luke 10 just for the month of April. We complete it today. And we've been looking at it for application of Romans 1 through 3, where we were for the first uh, three months of the year. And we could have gone to any number of places biblically to apply the doctrine that we got in Romans 1 to 3. But rather than just go straight through Romans, we're taking it in sections and we're punctuating each part with a mini-series aimed at helping us do something with all the doctrine that we get in Romans, because you don't get to application in Romans until chapter 12. And so what I don't want to have happen is we move through Romans and we, we are very doctrinally focused for months on end and your head gets really big and your hands get really small. I want you to, to have a, a balance in this. And so in, in Romans chapters 1 through 3, and we're coming next month and into June in Romans 4 and 5, that will be its own series. But in the first three chapters in Romans, we looked at the doctrine of sin and why it matters. And in Luke 10, we see that our mission in the world is informed by this doctrine, that we are redeemed sinners sent to speak and serve other sinners in Jesus' name with what he has done for us being our primary motivation for this. And in this vein comes the Martha and Mary story, which is often a standalone text, a text that a preacher will just sort of dive into. It's really good that we're coming to it, having looked at the 37 verses that precede it for three weeks prior, because we need to keep the end of the story in Luke 10 connected to the beginning of the story, and I'll try to do that for you. But the Martha-Mary story, it doesn't reflect a divide in the church. How many times have you heard a teacher kind of wade into this with some of you are more Martha types and some of you are more Mary types? Teaching on this story often partitions the church into Martha's and Mary's. Which one are you? Whose side are you on? As if there's some sort of uh, fundamental conflict uh, going on to hear some tell it. Can these two get along? Can they love and appreciate what the other brings? That's the angle often taken. But it's a kind of a zero-sum approach. I mean, as if all Martha did ever was work. Martha didn't sometimes listen to teaching. I'm sure she did. As if Mary, all she ever did was listen to teaching. I'm sure Mary worked. These two sisters do exist in attention in the moment here, but the moment should not define them, nor should it establish this dividing line in the church, which I, I think is just artificial. I think the preachers do that. Uh, Martha wasn't always working. And Mary wasn't always listening. You just get one little moment in their lives here, as if it's one or the other. No. But as we look at their story, we do need to keep the beginning of the chapter in view because it informs the end of the chapter here. So look back to verse 1. We're at the end in verses 38 to 42, but look back at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, sent them out to do what? Speak and serve. Two things the 72 sent out to do. Speak and serve in every town, verse 1, and place where he himself was about to go. To do what? To speak and serve. Just as he has sent out, so he does. Verse 38, his personal going and doing. Jesus enters a village, verse 38, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And it could very well be that Martha welcomed a pair of the 72 beforehand. 
But now the Lord himself is, is in her home. Look back at verses 5 through 8 as we try to keep the two parts of the chapter connected. Look back to verse 5. Jesus' instructions, whatever house you enter. He says, don't take any provisions for yourself. You're going to depend on the hospitality of others. And so verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the labor deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. What is Luke chapter 10? It's Jesus sending out followers two by two to places that he would go to later himself. And here he is in verses 38 to 42, just doing that. Jesus went out himself. And he went not just to Mary's or, and Martha's town, but he went to their home. Mary was also there with her sister Martha. And he's welcomed. Who are Martha and Mary? They are people of peace. The instruction in verses 5 and 6, when you go into the home, peace, peace be to you. And if a son of peace is there, the peace will be taken. That is, the, the greeting will, will stick. They will welcome you. They're people of peace. Yes, there is a tension between them in this moment at the end of the chapter. But as they welcomed Jesus, that makes them people of peace. And they are also two more followers in this chapter. Here is another pairing of followers at the end. Only these aren't sent out. When we meet them, they're not sent out, but they're taking in. They're not seeking hospitality, but they're giving it. Now, back in verses 5 through 8, eating is mentioned twice. And you always look for things that are repeated in Scripture because an emphasis is there. Those who provide hospitality, that's what they provide. A meal. Lodging, perhaps, which matters to the mission. And Luke 10 is about the mission of Jesus in the world, which the church is carrying out day by day. Hospitality is vital to that mission. Christians are always eating together in the New Testament. This is a key part of our fellowship and a key part of our evangelism also when you open your home to non-Christians to share a meal with you. Uh, there are people who won't darken the door of an evangelical church, but will enter an evangelical's home when invited over for a meal. The body of Christ, we the church, what are we energized by? By verse 20. Remember verse 20? Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, what we rejoice in is what God has done for us in Christ. This gives us our standing, this gives us our energy. And yet we're physical beings. We have to have physical energy for the work. Thank God for Martha. Concerning herself with that need. Here's what she's doing in our text, verses 38 to 42. She's serving to this end, feeding Jesus and those with him. Much serving. You see how the text puts that? And if you host... If, you, if you're somebody who regularly opens your home and hosts, you know it requires a lot of you to do this well. And Luke says that she's distracted by it, which good hosts take as a given. Of course you're going to be distracted by it if you're doing it well. But in her distraction is a problem. A missional problem, we might call it, keeping with the theme of the chapter. 
Let's not read the end of this chapter without keeping the beginning in view. Jesus anticipated hospitality for the 72 that he sent out, as well as rejection. He anticipated that also. The gospel is attractive and offensive both. But those who give hospitality are blessed. He blesses those providing it. He blesses those who welcome his followers into their homes. How much more blessed is Martha in that consideration? What an honor to have the Lord himself now under her roof. I want you to hear that it's a good thing Martha is doing. There's a faint echo of another Martha in that sentence. Wasn't that the Martha Stewart catchphrase back when she was a thing? It's a good thing. And her little New England clam chowder accent that she put on that. In view of how things were supposed to work, that's why I read verses 5 through 8 to you again. In view of how things were supposed to work, because when it didn't work that way in verses 5 through 8, what followed? Woe to you. Do you know the trouble you're in when you don't receive the followers? That's the rest of Luke 10. But in view of how things were supposed to work, verses 5 through 8, it's a good thing Martha does here. A good thing welcomes Jesus and those with him, tends to their physical need for a meal. There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with the work Martha's giving herself to unless she's possibly doing it at the wrong time and thereby missing something she needs to be in on. And that is the problem here. The problem here is not Martha's effort. It's her timing. We've already seen in this chapter, those involved in the mission, the sending of the 72 out is the mission of the church in microcosm. You have it in this chapter. Those involved in the mission have physical needs. Don't take provisions. Let people provide for you. And they go out to address physical needs. Remember that? Verse 9, heal the sick. Verse 34, the good Samaritan, what he does. Here is Martha, not in the trauma of the physical, but nevertheless true to its concerns. Addressing physical needs of the followers is being true to the mission. Hear that. Needful work. Except in her case, on that day, in that moment, she was in her efforts to serve other people, actually not serving the work. And when Jesus says to her, one thing is necessary, this is what he's saying to her. I want you to serve the work. What does that mean? Serve the work. I thought she was working here and that was the problem. Not exactly. Serve the work is a phrase that comes from Dorothy Sayers. Some of you will know that name. She was a, a writer. She was a contemporary of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. She knew them. They knew her. Among her writings is, uh, she was mostly a novelist. She did a lot of mystery uh, stories, but she did also a lot of essays. And one of the things she addressed was work. She wrote an essay on work called Why Work? You can read it in her book, Letters to a Diminished Church. And in that essay she published, she explored the idea that work serves God best when the worker serves the work itself. And we hear that and we go, now, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Because I thought work that serves God best serves people, not itself. 
And, and isn't that the essence of the law? Remember, we got the law quoted, the boiled down into the two prominent uh, commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Verse 27, the lawyer quotes that to Jesus, that love your neighbor as yourself, really important. Jesus says, you're right about that. That's here in this chapter. I thought our work serves God when it serves neighbor. What are you saying serve the work? Well, that's right. Our work does uh, serve God when it serves neighbor. But Dorothy Sayers noticed something we often overlook. She noticed that if the second commandment in the pairing, if you go back to verse 27, the lawyer quotes, love the Lord your God, the first, love your neighbors yourself, the second. If in that pairing, the second commandment, love your neighbor, isn't tied to the first, love God, the second commandment can become a snare when you are doing good work, the work God has fitted you for, but you're doing it for the way approval of it makes you feel. When you're doing it so that your neighbor will love you for doing it. Something gets turned around, and Sayers was on to this. She understood, and so do we when we think about it, that the moment you put yourself out there to serve others, as Martha did, as we do, you begin to have a notion form that other people owe you something for your pains. And if that notion develops, then you're not serving the work. You're doing. You're blessing in the doing. You're active. People are benefited. But we can make a kind of claim on people when we serve them. That's why this story is here. We can make a kind of claim on the ones we serve. If no one helps you, you're serving, but no one's helping you. No one thanks you. No one, not enough people turn out for it. You can say, ah, you know, it's okay. This is work I'm doing for, for the Lord anyway. And you can mean that, but you've also noticed the lack of help. It's registered. You've noticed the lack of thanks. You've noticed the lack of others involved. And, and when it registers with you, something can begin to click off in your heart. It registered with Dorothy Sayers, and she explored how when you put yourself to serving other people, with that may come a notion, other people owe you something for your pains. And you can suppress that notion no, nobody needs to help me. Nobody needs to, to thank me. But what happens to a lot of us in Dorothy Sayers' observation is we angle for applause and harbor grievance if unappreciated. Is that not Martha in our text? Verse 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. What's going on? Martha was serving people and doing a dang good job at it. She knew. This is her element, man. But why was no one helping, Mary? Why was no one appreciating it, Jesus? Had Martha been serving the work, in this case, serving the work of Jesus in the world, which this chapter is a little bit of, almost like a zip file of this, everything that's, that's, that's up in here, had Martha been serving the work, her presence to the group as hostess would not require her be absent to what Jesus was actually doing in her home. He was there to feed her. The guests needed a meal. It's Martha's work to give. 
But Jesus was feeding also in his teaching, and Martha was missing it because there were all these people to serve, but for serving the people, for doing what needed to be done, she set herself up for grievance. She needed to serve the work. Martha, one thing is necessary here, the work. What is the work? Well, to help us understand this, let me draw upon two examples, one from Jesus, one from Paul. Do you remember the woman at the well story? Of course you do, John chapter 4. How the disciples, the text there says, the disciples go away from Jesus to uh, buy food, to take care of physical needs. Yes, we're energized by the fact that our names are written in heaven, but we got to have physical energy every day. Somebody's got to provide a meal. And they go to provide that meal to meet the physical needs, and they return with the food. And they make a plate of it for Jesus, but he turns it down in order to turn it into a teaching moment. He says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 4, 34. Remember that? Jesus served people by serving the work. He never served anyone that he wasn't serving the work he was sent to do. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Paul. There's a place in the epistles where Paul says, I'm not out to please people, I'm out to please God. And that's easy to twist with, you know, defensive people can take that and say, and make it, and make it very dismissive. I'm not out to, you know, somebody gives you some pushback, you don't like, well, I'm not out to please you, I'm out to please God. As if it means that, it doesn't mean that. It's a statement of Paul serving the work. To say I'm, I'm out to serve, uh, to please God, not people, was, was, was not dismissing people. It wasn't saying I don't care about you. No, look how much he agonized over people in his letters as he served the work. Plug these into Luke 10 here. Jesus is telling Martha, serve the work. Your work is my work in the world. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To serve the work in her home on that day was to be fully present to the mission. And in calling her distracted, as Luke does, this indicates she was only partially present. Everyone on mission has to eat, right? <laughs> you got to. We've got bodies to tend to and take care of. The eating requires preparation by someone. Martha is that someone in this context, and preparation takes time. And we pour a lot of ourselves into our responsibilities met well. But Jesus says to Martha, Martha, I've put myself in your home, not just to be fed by you, but to feed you. It's got to be both, Martha. It's got to be both. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. This is, this is my food, and, and right now Mary is in there feasting, and, and you should too. Living water, bread of life, whoever eats and drinks from me never hungers and thirsts again. Join us, Martha, join us, and then we'll join you. See, we concentrate so much on the correction of Martha that we miss the invitation implicit within it. Martha, join us. And then we'll join you, which ought to encourage all of us because we're all susceptible to distraction and preoccupation. This is why I don't like the approach, how many of you are Marthas? How many of you are Marys? You know, are we ever going to agree? 
I guess that's the accent I heard then coming around, coming up. Sorry. All of us are susceptible to distraction and preoccupation. This is all of us. There really isn't a Martha type and a Mary type in the church because any and all of us can get distracted, whether it's with a piece of the work or people's needs pressing on us or some other great concern, and we miss the center. It happens. What's this chapter about? The worker. This chapter is about the worker. That's why Luke puts Martha and Mary here. It's about the worker. The work has to be done. But it can't be done in a way that misses the one it's really done for. It just happened to be Martha missing it on this day. But we're all Martha at one time or another. We're all Mary at one time or another. We're both. There's a definition of worship. Worship is our response to God, and it, and it, and it characterizes all of life. In fact, when we get to Romans 12, eventually, sometime next year, late next year, uh, when we get to Romans 12, we'll see that the application of all of that, of all that doctrine in 11 chapters is worship. A body is a living sacrifice, not crawling off the altar, but here I am. Lord, how are you going to use me? How do you want to build me? What do you want to scrape off of me? What do you want to infuse into me? Worship. Worship is a response. And the best definition I came across is is, uh, Eugene Peterson's. The way he put it is that worship is the strategy whereby we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and tend to the presence of God. I love that. Worship is a strategy. It's not a tactic, a Sunday morning thing that I, uh, that I go to and present myself physically present. It's a strategy of all of life whereby we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and tend to the presence of God. Worship requires we break preoccupations to attend to the presence of God. What does God have to do with this? Every involvement I have, every allegiance, all of it, And Martha had sitting there in her living room the presence of God, God in flesh. And if she could get distracted with him there teaching, if she could get preoccupied when the Son of God stood in her home, how much more you and me? But take heart when you read this. I know this passage gets, people get beat on with this passage, and and I used to be one of those who did that, but... Take heart when you read this because the mission doesn't pass Martha by for her distractibility. Because the question that should come to your mind as you go through Luke 10 is, okay, I get it. You're going to send me out and I'm going to encounter things. And and at times I'm going to see a power working through me that's going to really make me marvel and go, whoa, I'm something. And I'm going to, well, no, it's really not that I'm something. It's that God's something. But what if I get distracted? I've got kids. I've got... uh, well, I've had a mortgage. I'm moving to another one, uh, changing houses in June. I've got a grandson coming. I've got, I've got uh, the, the pressing needs of a church community. I've got uh, citizenship responsibilities. There's a, there's a vote this week. I've got to go to the polls. I've got to find time Tuesday to do that. There's all this stuff. What if I get distracted? Thank God for this story. Martha isn't passed over because of her distractibility. She's very much in on the mission. We just get to watch her learning curve. Aren't you glad it's hers and not yours? I'll take that as a yes. 
There's a learning curve for us all in this. And there's a very, 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 very patient teacher. She's doing something really good right here. Man, this is good. She's doing something for Jesus, and yet she's missing him in the midst of it. Is that possible? Oh, let us count the ways. <laughs> yes, this is possible. The, all the ways we do good things, things for Jesus, and you miss Jesus in the midst of it. Listen, I'm a, I'm, I'll just tell you from my vantage point, I preached for years that way. Years. And how gracious you've been as a church to let me unlearn that way of preaching. Because you really have been. I've told you before, y'all are far better than you realize you are. This is, a, this is a, I know you don't want your horn tooted kind of thing here, but dad gum, this is a good church. And, and the way that you've been with me, and I became senior pastor at 38 here. You know the risk you took? Well, you do know because you watched me. And unfortunately, some of you I probably pushed away in the beginning and haven't been able to recover, and, and I hope that can change. I really do. But listen, man, um, when I'm still unlearning. I, I knew I didn't want to be moralistic and scold people from the pulpit. I, I was turned off by that kind of preaching myself, although I've done it. And some people, I, I've realized, really like moralistic preaching, because moralistic holds out the false hope. Moralistic preaching holds out the false hope that you can really change yourself if you just get it together. That's why people. That's why people love it. They flock to it because it flatters us. It flatters our sense of self righteousness that I really don't need Jesus except for whatever happens at the point of death. If I'm going to see God, I got to be standing. Well, I'm with Him and He's with me, and you got to have Him. For the longest time. The main impression I left people with when I preached, if, if I wasn't preaching over your head, because I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm from a small town in Alabama and I didn't want you to think me a yokel. I went to my doctor, doctoral program on probation, on academic probation, because of my record in school. Okay? I laugh when people say how intellectual I am on the inside. I don't laugh at your face, but on the inside, I laugh. Anything that I know and have learned, it's, 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 it's been hitting the books. It doesn't come natural. Listen, if I wasn't preaching over your head, so you, because I had that small town chip because here God put me in a city pulpit and when you're from a, a little town and your school was nothing and you, were, you, were, you heard the cheers standing on the field, that's all right, that's okay, you're going to work for us someday, you know. <laughs> and you were the one there you're going to work for. <laughs> or go back, go back, go back to the woods. That was one of the great ones when we played in some of the, the real cultural centers like Muscle Shoals and places like that, you know. You turn around and you look up in the stands and you see people, you know, and, and you, you develop this little sense about yourself that somehow coming from your town, you're not good enough. And then you get into a city pulpit and what do you do? You, you try too hard to show that I could have gone to your schools. That's what you do. And thank God for a patient congregation. You didn't know you were being patient. A lot of you probably weren't patient, but God just went over you and that was fine. 
And, and what happened to me is, is for the longest time, here's the main thing to say with that. For the longest time, I think the main impression I left people with when I preached was a greater sense of God. You need to meet God's expectations of you rather than God's grace has met us where we are. For the longest time, I missed Jesus in that. I mean, he was in the room. I was talking about him. I was invoking his name. I was preaching his word. But I was missing him in that fundamental way because I put the emphasis more on what we need to be doing for him rather than what we need to be doing for him coming out of a place of response and love for him because of what he's done for us. I just got the order wrong for a long time. (laughs) I'm sorry. See, what I did is I measured out obedience for you like, like medicine dosage, you know, take it. Here it is. I know it doesn't taste good. Swallow it. A lot of preachers do that. And the reason we do is because of insecurity. I don't know why God calls so many men into ministry who are so deeply insecure, but he does. It's, I think it's just part of his process. So if you're a young man in here and you get called in ministry, that's great. Uh, there's, I hope there's a thousand other occupations he'll take you into before this one. Don't, don't misread that. But if, 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 congratulations, you're going to learn how insecure you really are right? when you get into this. And somehow, instead of talking to people about how much we're loved, and when you get that, when that drills down in you, a lot of the obedience follows and a lot of the insecurity melts away. It just takes some of us a lot longer to learn. Thank you for giving me space. And so I know now, or at least I think I know, what Jesus says to Martha in verses 40, 41 and 42 is what you need to hear when you're trying too hard to be in control or, or even trying uh, so hard to serve people. And, and a lot of me gets tied up in that. In verses 41 and 42, as you're looking at it in your Bible, he speaks to her anxiety as the source of her distraction. And this is not a clinical approach to anxiety, you understand. But that variety of it we all feel when we don't feel like we're in control and we don't like it. Verse 40, tell her to help me. In verses 41 and 42, what Jesus says to that in Martha is he doesn't put her down. He doesn't minimize her work. He lifts her up to serving the work itself. Martha, there's really one thing that's necessary here. And all the rest of it we'll get to. The service you render people, whatever form that takes, it always opens us up for doing it in a, in a way that the approval of it, it this, this way it makes you feel. You want the neighbor, instead of loving the neighbor, now I want the neighbor to love me. That's the risk. The risk there is, is the work for all its emphasis on, on people needing to be served, and people do need to be served. The work has become detached from the love of God. When, when you're coming to God to complain, and you can do that, no one's helping me, or work. Here's the one. Here's the one. I'm sure he laughs. No one gets me, Lord. You know. When that happens, when you come to God to complain, it's because you've made a claim on people that they have to join themselves to you. And we all do this. We're all Martha. And I remind you here, verse 20 again. What's the motivation for this work that we do? It's that our names are written in heaven, that what really matters in anything and everything is that God has joined us to him. 
He recruits us, not the other way around. And when I get that, when, when that drills down in me, it's a death blow to that kind of anxiety bred by the need to control and, and, and it chases away that grievance. It, it pulls it up by the roots, what I'm, that weed that I'm nurturing when I don't think what I'm doing or the me who's doing it is appreciated enough. We're all there. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, he said to the 72. And we talked about that, that it's not that you can't take delight in good work done well and, and results, and you can count and you can say, yeah, this was great. Hey, we're celebrating this. You can do that. Don't be wooden with this. Rejoice not that everyone goes from your house saying, what an incredible host. Though you can take delight in that because God has fitted you and, and, and uses you that way. Rejoice not that you count yourself to be one of the givers, not the takers. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I think it was Ravi Zacharias who said something to the effect that in the gospel we find God humbling all of us without humiliating any of us and elevating all of us without exalting any of us. Only God can pull that off because God is Jesus. I love the way this chapter rolls. I love that Jesus says, there's a work to be done, and I'm going to send out these 72 to do it. And I love that he says in verse 2, back in verse 2, to pray for workers. And implied in that is, move into the harvest yourself. Jesus is work-focused. There's a mission, and it aims at, at sinful people. What did we learn in Romans 1 through 3? All have sinned. Whether your sin is unrighteous, more in flavor, whether it's self-righteous more in flavor. All of sin, sin is the criteria. You have to meet the sin criteria in order to get the grace, and we've all met the sin criteria. I love how Jesus works, how he calls us to work, how he prays us into the work, how he puts us in the work, and then he goes into the home of this most diligent little worker. And he doesn't put her down as if her contribution is, you know, sort of sidelight, as if it's okay that she stay back there and, and tend to the preparation. He misses her. Where are you, Martha? We're all in here. Come in here and be with us. I want to feed you, and then I'll be fed by you. It's part of the mission what Martha's doing. It's just that her timing is off. Her timing is just a little bit off. Jesus, in correcting Martha's tactic and timing, he lifts her to a greater strategy, the strategy of worship. Attend to me. Life is a story about me, Martha. I put myself in your home, not just to be fed by you, which will happen, but to feed you, which is happening now, and you're missing it, but it's got to be both, Martha. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. My food is that to accomplish his work, and I offer it to you and to you and to you and to you and to you. Living water, bread of life. Whoever eats and drinks from me never hungers, never thirsts again. This is God's word. Stand with me. Let's pray.